Father, we praise you that you are faithful yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. You remain the same. You remain steadfast, both with the rising of the sun and its setting. You never change. So, Lord, could we rest in you today? Because, Father, we come to you and we confess that we change. Lord, that our hearts can be fickle and our minds can quickly change. And we are prone to wonder, to come and to go with the wind. And so we ask today, Lord, would you anchor us to you? Would you tether us to the steadfast anchor of your word? Would you do what you have said in your word that you will do? Would you pierce our hearts this morning? Lord, would we open up ourselves to you now, our hearts, our minds, that everything you have to say for us this morning would permeate to our core. And that you, Lord, as the great craftsman, you would mold us and shape us and make us more like your son, Jesus. As you transform our minds and you conform our will to the power and the strength of your word. So Lord, go before us this morning, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, Help us to blot out every distraction outside of this room. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know that you are good and that you are faithful. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me uh, in your Bible to the Old Testament book of Ezra, or excuse me, Nehemiah. We've already done Ezra. Uh, Nehemiah, we're going to be Nehemiah chapters uh, four through six this morning. If you're here with us for the very first time, uh, over the last couple of months, we've been walking and doing an overview uh, through the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Wrapped up Ezra a couple weeks ago, picked up a Nehemiah last week. And uh, up to this point in time, what we've seen over the last couple of months is that God's people had fallen into 70 years of exile and captivity because of their disobedience to the Lord. But in spite of their disobedience, the Lord had promised before they fell into captivity that once again the time would come that he would gather his people to himself, he would restore his people to himself, and send them back home to rebuild their city. So up to this point, we've seen return waves that have come back from exile under the leadership of men like Zerubbabel and Ezra, who led the efforts to rebuild the temple, which was the place of worship, and to recover the ministry of God's word, to make sure that the people were walking in accordance with God's word so they wouldn't fall into his punishment again. And this morning, we're going to pick right up where we left off last week, which is the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. Now, uh, typically at the beginning of a message, I like to share some sort of story, some sort of illustration that really helps the truth of the scripture stick with us. I do this primarily because that's how Jesus taught. And again, you could study public speaking and know that it's important to create a hook within about the first 30 to 45 seconds so that uh, we don't wander off into scrolling our phones and daydreaming about lunch and everything else that's happening. Happening. Um, but uh, this past week, we had this unique experience where uh, many of you have probably heard of this new app called Cameo, where what you can do is you can actually go in and request like a high-profile person, a celebrity, uh, deliver some sort of personal encouragement or greeting or message to one of your friends. And um, I am a lifelong diehard fan of the Atlanta Braves. Who's with me in that this morning? Praise God. The rest of you, there's still time. Uh, and this, this morning is, is your moment. And uh, love the Braves, especially as a kid growing up in the 90s, idolized uh, one player in particular, John Smoltz, who was a legendary pitcher for the Braves, Hall of Famer. Well, this past week, uh, Grayson in particular, and several others, um, for me, gave me one of the coolest gifts I've ever received. 
uh, which was a personal encouragement for me and our church family from Braves legend and Hall of Fame pitcher John Smoltz, who actually uh, also happens to be a very strong believer. And so uh, this is about all the introduction I think we're going to need this morning. I just want you to take a minute to watch this word of encouragement our church family uh, received this hey, week. Hey, Taylor, this is John Smoltz here in my basement uh, in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And I understand you're a pastor of a young church in Bu Buford, South Carolina, called Cross Community Church. And uh, man, I can't thank you enough for your vision and passion for leading people. I, I know what it's like to try and start something. And, and when you think there's not a lot of light at the end of the tunnel, God shows up and delivers an incredible way. So I know you guys are embarking in, an, in a mission to try and build and uh, develop this great passion of yours. I want you to stay uh, encouraged that uh, this this road is the right road to be on, and God is going to bless you in everything that he does. Uh, even if a door closes, another one's going to open up. I can remember starting Kings Ridge Christian School in 2000, thinking, how in the world is this going to work? And now 21 years later, it's been uh, a developed uh, Christian school that is, is flourishing in our community. So I wish you the best, and uh, may God bless your uh, endeavors in, in a mighty way. Right, the right-handed Reverend John Smoltz this morning, folks. That's the, uh, the word from, from him this morning. And man, that pretty much sets up exactly where we're going today in Nehemiah chapter 4. It's pretty simple this morning, church. You and I have been given a mission. And there's going to be moments when it feels like it's impossible, and we better believe that the enemy at every single turn is going to do everything that he can to distract us. But what we have to do is remain encouraged, remain steadfast, and continue with unrelenting focus, fulfilling what it is the Lord has given us to do. So if you're following along in your notes this morning, what we're going to see as we work through Nehemiah 4 through 6 is that as we work, we must continually be on guard against the external threats of the enemy and the internal sins of the body as you and I carry out our mission of proclaiming the eternal glory of the Lord. Some threats are going to be external and they're going to come from the world, but there's other threats that can be internal and can even come within the church. And we, with great focus, have to keep the main thing the main thing, remain steadfast and carry out the work that the Lord has given us to do. So let's read uh, from God's Word together this morning, Nehemiah chapter 4, uh, beginning with verses 1 through 9. It says, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Here's Nehemiah's prayer, verse four. He says, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from their sight, from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambal and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So as we carry out the Lord's work, we see first this morning, church, that we should expect the enemy's opposition. 
Now, this is not the first time we have made this point over the last several weeks. Because as we've looked at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we've followed this same repetitive cycle now for a couple of months. There's a commission by a governing authority for the Jewish people to return and to take on a building project. When the project begins, they face opposition from their neighbors and from their enemies, but ultimately the project is still brought to completion. So uh, here we are, round three. As they're working, there's these two men, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah. They were both local administrators, so the work that the Jewish people was doing threatened their authority. They didn't like what they were doing. So in their anger, they start to mock them. They start to jeer them. They start to level threats against them. But instead of engaging them, instead of being drawn out from the work and distracted from the work, Nehemiah simply calls out to the Lord. He asks for the Lord to rise up, and he leaves these men ultimately to the judgments and to the justice of God. But nevertheless, we see in verses uh, 10 through 13, they realize that they still need more people to rise up with them and do this work. And then this is what we find down in verse 14. Nehemiah says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. I want you to say that with me this morning. Remember the Lord who is great, everyone say great, and awesome, everyone say awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So these actions draw even more attention from their enemies, and then here's how the chapter closes out in verses 15 through 20. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand held on his weapon and the other with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So this is a pretty powerful picture. They, they take on this work of rebuilding the wall. They're facing opposition as they go. So it's a massive construction project that they're undertaking here. And in the midst of all this, they have people mocking them, jeering at them, uh, threatening them. And, and so they, they basically call in more people, bring them together. And this is the picture that we get. I'm going to use a couple of props this morning. This is the picture that we get. In one hand, it says they had their tools and they're doing the work. They're completing the work. But in the other hand, it says they have their weapons. Now, ironically, uh, I had a sword at home, but not a mallet hammer. Dustin hooked me up with this this morning. <laughs> Make an ugly face at me during my sermon today. I dare you. Of course, in South Carolina, some of you have better weapons than that with you right now. It's okay. Um, so this is, the picture that, this is the picture that we have. They're, they're working along, they're working with one hand, they've got the hammer, the other hand, they've got their weapons, and so they're still focused on the work that the Lord's given them to do, but at the same time, they have to be aware of the fact that their enemies are right there, and they're trying to threaten this work. But it's, as we saw last week, it's not just a passive praying, it's an active praying. They don't just pray, Lord, will you do this, and do nothing. They pray, and then they get to work. They pray and they take up their hammers. They pray and they take up their swords and they trust and believe that it's the Lord that's gonna do this work through them. Church, when we participate in God's kingdom work, we will face opposition. We will. The Apostle Paul warns in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. 
This is the promise for every one of us who are followers of Jesus. This is to be the normal Christian experience. We will face opposition. But again, you and I have just lived in a place where we haven't had to experience that a whole lot, which is why when we do face even the slightest semblance of opposition, many of us just start to cower back in fear. And we stay silent and we keep our mouths closed with the good news of Jesus. And church, I think the time has come again that we once again need to remember the Lord. We need to remember our God who is great and awesome, and the trumpet needs to be sounded again. It's time for the people of God once again to rally together with the confidence that our God will fight for us. That with the sword of his word in one hand and making disciples, that hammer in the other hand, we are at the same time working to fend off the enemies as we continue carrying out his kingdom work. And every step of the way, we have to know that we're going to face external opposition, but not every threat comes from the outside. Some threats come from the inside. When we get to chapter five, we see that many of the Jewish people are going through a really difficult time and they're struggling to have enough food. So they get to the place where they'll mortgage their land and property. They give themselves into slavery to their own people. They borrow money from the Jewish nobles and the Jewish nobles force them to, just to pay taxes, but then the Jewish nobles uh, charge them interest for this. And this is a problem because that was a direct violation of the Jewish Mosaic law. If you look in Deuteronomy 23:19, that the law clearly said, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Instead of helping their spiritual family in time of need, they were taking advantage of them in order to gain more money for themselves. And this just enrages Nehemiah because once again, the Lord has brought the people back out of their bondage of captivity. And once again, they're ignoring his word and falling back into sin. And so we see Nehemiah say against them in uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you were doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So as we carry out the work, we see first that we should expect the enemy's opposition. And that can be external. But also, second, we have to confront the enemy's oppression. And this may very well be internal. Some threats are external coming from the world. Some threats are internal, even coming from the body of believers. Remember when I was going through uh, basic training with the army about 15 years ago, we'd been out in the field uh, for a couple of days doing a field training exercise. And we were just being trained on how to set like a 360 degree perimeter. And um, so we'd been out for a couple of days, hadn't slept a whole lot. And I remember one morning, it was about two o'clock in the morning, one of our drill sergeants shoots a flare straight up in the air uh, just to illuminate the, the night sky. And then as soon as that flare went up, we saw three of our drill sergeants running at our perimeter. And it was our job to stop them and to follow our training and to keep them from breaching. But what happens uh, when the flare went up is that uh, many who were on our perimeter line, instead of keeping their eyes outward and keeping an eye on what might happen, they all turned their backs and started looking at what was happening behind them. And while a bunch of us were handling what was happening on one end, others had turned their eyes towards our direction. And during that time, one of our drill sergeants had snuck into our perimeter. And so after a few minutes, uh, we got everything settled down. We thought everything was good. We thought everything was well. But then I hear about 50 feet away from me to my right, as one of my drill sergeants in that frog voice they all get, you know, because they're yelling all the time. I just hear him at the top of his lungs, you're dead, private. And he's taking a red Sharpie across his throat. 
And then we had to like drag him into the middle on a poncho and pretend he was dead. And we had to have a funeral and stuff like that. And, and, and so we were reminded in that moment because we were so focused on what was happening on the outside, we'd lost sight of what was happening on the inside. And this sometimes happens within the life of the church. We can be so focused on the sins of the culture that we forget to address the sins of the church. And church, I've said this every single week now, I think for six or seven weeks, and I'm going to say it until we either believe it or move on somewhere else. Before there can be revival in the culture, there must be repentance in the church. This is how Jesus taught it in Matthew chapter 7. He says, listen, before you can deal with the speck in your neighbor's eye, you've got to deal with the log in your own. And some threats are external coming from the world, but other threats are internal coming from the church. We've seen it over the last several decades even. The church has never hesitated to confront the sexual re revolution, but during that same time frame, we ignored and even covered up sexual abuse within the church. We've seen over the last few decades that we have rightly spoken out against the sin of abortion, but we've remained largely silent against sins of racial injustice and prejudice. We're never slow to correct the abusive and corrupt speech of the culture, but we will allow gossip and slander to persist in our own ranks. Before there can be revival in the culture, there has to be repentance in the church. And we cannot be so focused on what's happening out in the world that we lose sight of what's happening in here. You see, what happens sometimes, some of us as followers of Jesus, we're all sword, but we're no hammer. We're constantly fighting against the sins of the world. And because we stop paying attention to the sin that's in our own hearts and in the life of our church, it continues to fester and destroy us from within. But then on the other end, some of us as followers of Jesus, we're all hammer and we're no sword. We just live in sort of this willful ignorance. We're not paying attention to the brokenness and the outside influences that could come into the church. And the reality is we have to be people who do both. We have to be people who take up the sword of the word of God and we extinguish the work of the enemy and work against the work of the enemy. And we have to be people who are making disciples, who are building up the work of the church. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Some threats are external, some threats are internal, but you better believe, while we're focused on the internal threat, that the enemy from chapter 4 hasn't gone anywhere. And I think it's amazing that chapter 5 is sandwiched like this in between chapters 4 through 6. And that's why I wanted to teach all, through, uh, three, all, all three of these together this morning. Because we see both of the threats. One is external, one is internal. So now while they're addressing the internal threat, here comes the external threat once again doubling down. So uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, let's read verses 1 through 4. It says here that when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hekepharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, pay attention here. I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? In verse 4, and they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So as we carry out the Lord's work, we should expect the enemy's opposition. We have to confront the enemy's oppression, even if it's happening internally. Third, this morning we see we have to ignore the enemy's obstruction. The enemy is going to do anything and everything he can to derail our focus and to get us off mission. Now, Nehemiah very quickly recognizes this conspiracy to draw him out. 
He understands that this is nothing more than an effort from the enemy to distract him from his primary task, which was the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. So he's undeterred. He's he's undistracted. He's not going to be carried away by this, but they continue to distract. We see in verses 5 through 9 that they uh, start to spread lies about him and the work that he and those who are with him are doing. They think that those threats will cause the work to stop. But we see down in verse 9 that Nehemiah prays, Oh God, strengthen my hands. He wants to stay focused. He, he doesn't want to be distracted. He doesn't want to be drawn out. He doesn't want to be pulled away from the task the Lord had given him to do. And then verses 10 through 14, we see that instead of being drawn into that distraction, he just prays once again that they would be left to the just judgment of God. And then we see down in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, he says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, look at this, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So even when the the work is completed, the enemies continue to level their threats, but there's no mistake. Even their unbelieving enemies and neighbors cannot help but notice that this had to be the hand of the Lord that was at work. Your church, as a church family, over the last few weeks, we've been part not of a 52-day effort, but of a 50-day effort of prayer and of fasting. Now, as, as many of you have, have committed to this work of prayer and fasting uh, for 50 days leading up to Easter, how many of you at different times you have felt the distraction of the enemy trying to pull you in a different direction? Every single one of us probably tempting us in a different direction, trying to draw us away from prayer, just in, uh, we'll get rid of one thing, but then we'll sort of replace it with a lesser desire. Like we'll get off of social media, but then we'll just start streaming more content online. You know, we'll stop eating cookies, but we'll just eat brownies instead or something like that. Like that's, that's how my mind works at least. And so we're, we're quickly and easily drawn away. We know that the enemy is going to work to oppose us at everything he can do to distract us each step of the way. But what we are praying for is for God to move in such a way in our church family and in our community that even the unbelieving world looks at this and they cannot deny that God's hand has been at work. That they have to know that's not normal what's taking place. And this is what we're desiring to see. And that's why we continue to press in to this mission. But just like God's people in Nehemiah 4 through 6, you and I have to know the enemy is going to work to distract us each step of the way. So just very quickly this morning, uh, I want to look at at three primary distractions to our mission. Three primary distractions to our mission, things that the enemy will try to use to draw us out and keep us from being focused on what the Lord has given us to do. The first one really summarizes all three of them, and it's spiritual forces. Again, it goes against our modern sensibilities, church, but we can never minimize the fact that there are forces of evil that are working in the unseen realms to draw us away from the Lord. We can never minimize the reality of spiritual warfare. The uh, Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So first and foremost, we have to recognize the reality of spiritual forces. We have to recognize the reality of spiritual warfare. But more specifically, uh, in the realm of those spiritual forces working, there's two ways, I believe, primarily in the modern church that the enemy likes to distract us internally. Ways he likes to divide us and work within us internally to keep us from fulfilling that mission. One of those reasons is secondary differences. Now, we as a church family, we have a doctrinal statement. 
We believe every church should have a doctrinal statement that clearly states these are the beliefs of our church body. And we believe uh, that every uh, statement as a part of that doctrinal statement is important. Then we start to drift from these things. We are uh, drifting from biblically faithful Christianity. And so it's important that we have a healthy, strong doctrinal statement. But even within the primary doctrines of our doctrinal statement, we recognize that there's going to be some secondary disagreements. So, for example, our doctrinal statement very clearly says that we believe in a God who's created the heavens and the earth. Uh, But we believe faithful Christians can agree to disagree over the age of the earth. We believe uh, that Scripture tells us there will be a literal, physical second coming of Jesus Christ. But we believe that faithful followers of Jesus can disagree on the timing of that return. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we recognize there are uh, varying perspectives on the role of the spiritual gifts. Some believe that all the supernatural gifts from the New Testament are still available today. I'm in that camp, spoiler alert. Others believe uh, that those ceased at the closing of the New Testament canon. We believe that faithful, mature followers of Jesus Christ can agree to disagree on these things. Church, hear my heart on this this morning. While many of us over the last year have been debating the place of masks in our culture, billions of people are still perishing apart from Christ. And I ask you this morning, what good is a face without a mask if your mouth is going to remain closed with the good news of Jesus? I think these masks in a lot of ways are a fitting metaphor for the church because some of us haven't opened our mouth about Jesus in a really long time. And so we can split hairs over all these secondary differences, but all the while what the enemy's doing is he's distracting us from the primary mission. Uh, Another way the enemy tries to divide us is through superficial preferences. These are the proverbial color of the carpet types of arguments. And we'll complain about styles of music. We'll complain about uh, programs within the church body. We'll complain uh, about uh, how often we take communion, about how we dress on Sunday morning, uh, about um, anything under the sun that we can think of. But we'll find all these reasons. And the enemy just continues to draw us away, draw us away, draw us away, distract us from our primary mission. And this is what I fear we've become as a church culture. We've become a bunch of professional Christians who are critics and connoisseurs and consumers of church. And we have become like those who are overstuffed, overfed, making their seventh pass through the buffet line and complaining about the flavors of dessert when there's still two billion people on this planet who don't even know that there's a meal. And the enemy wants to draw us away. He means to distract us internally. So listen, this morning, I just hope you'll hear my heart. I think it's good to put this gauntlet down a couple times a year that this has been a season of transition. I know many of you are just moving to this area, and and this has been a season even of church transition, of people moving from one church to the other, even from our church into others. And I just want to make this really simple for you this morning. Here, we are doing a great work, and we cannot come down. Wherever you came from, it might have been safe for you to constantly split hairs over secondary differences and superficial preferences. But while two billion people have still not heard the name of Jesus Christ, We will not be career cynics and critics who are always finding things wrong with the church and causing division within the body. We are going to be people who eagerly and aggressively take this gospel to the ends of the earth. There's former president Teddy Roosevelt who once said this so very well. He says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, 
who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievements, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And church, my prayer for us this morning is that we'll be the people in the arena. We'll be the people who are making disciples. We are allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us for the building of Christ's church. There will be people with the sword of God's word in our hand, that we are actively working against the schemes of the enemy, the one who seeks to divide us both externally from the outside and internally from within, that we will set our minds to the task and say, here we are doing a great work and we cannot come down. We will not be dragged into the secondary debates of this culture and the superficial preferences of consumer Christians. But with relentless focus, we will proclaim the message that we've been given. Because today, as we stand in awe of the example of men like Nehemiah, we have to remember that he was still just a shadow of what was to come. Because four centuries later in Jerusalem, there would be another man who was lifted high up above his enemies. And they stood at his feet and they mocked him and they jeered at him. And they called for him to come down But instead of praying for God's judgment to fall on them, he took God's judgment on himself and offered them forgiveness. And as they mocked and as they jeered and as they cried out, come down from the cross, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, he remained steadfast to the end because he was doing a great work and he cannot come down. And that's the finished work that you and I stand in today and that's the finished work that we've been called to proclaim to the ends of this earth. So you just bow your heads with me for just a moment. We're going to enter into our time of communion where we are going to remember this finished work. We're going to remember the one who saw it through to the end, the one who with unrelenting focus was steadfast and endured. And because of his endurance, because he wasn't distracted by the enemy, because he did not come down, you and I can be raised to new life in him. And so I just want to encourage you for a moment before we come to the table this morning, we just ask the Lord to to search your hearts. What work of sin do you need to lay down at the foot of the finished work of the cross? What has the enemy torn down that the Lord today can rebuild? And will you stand in his victory once again today? So what sin do you just need to lay honestly before the Lord at his feet today? What words, what actions, what attitudes, what behaviors, what habits, what tendencies have just taken us captive that are keeping us from faithfully following him and from seeing him? Listen, it's, it's so easy to do. I've been there before. I think maybe in our 21st century, maybe just having a, a constantly critical and cynical spirit. You become the person who knows everything wrong about the church, but you're not doing anything to advance the name of Jesus. And today you just need to reorder your priorities a little bit and not be the critic who's critiquing from the outside, but to be the worker on the ladder who's building from the inside. What's the Lord calling you to do today? As we come to him in confession, we trust that he is faithful and he's just. He'll forgive us of our sins. He'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We have freedom, we have healing, we have forgiveness in the name of Jesus. So confess your sins to him this morning. And walk in the freedom of his salvation and forgiveness today. 
So fathers, we celebrate the finished work of your son, Jesus, the one who saw the work through to the end. God, that we get to stand here today and our first breath is that the work is done, is finished. And would you give us the same unrelenting, undistracting focus to be busy building your church and advancing your kingdom and allowing you to work in us and through us to make your glory known to the ends of the earth so that even the unbelieving world would know for certain that you have moved. We come to this table this morning asking that you would be glorified, Father, through our prayer, through our worship, through our remembrance of your life, your son's life, death, and resurrection. Would the gospel fall in our hearts in a fresh new way once again this morning. Be glorified now as we worship you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen.